Hey guys, you're listening to episode 48 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're talking with Jay Dykstra, a physician and the founder of Bless Big. show. My name is Cody, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. Today, we're talking with Jay Dykstra, a physician and the founder of Bless Big, an organization that assimilates data from over 20 different charity evaluators to provide information about the highest impact organizations in both the faith and secular worlds. Before we get started, I just wanted to ask one big favor of you guys. If you've been listening to the show for some time and want to support what we're doing, One easy and free way to do that is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Just write whatever you like about the show and you'll help others find us. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know when new episodes come out. And with that, let's get to the interview. All right, we're here with Jay Dykstra tonight. Thanks so much for joining us, Jay. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Yeah, so I'm hoping you can start us off just telling us a little bit about where you grew up, your faith background, and your career. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. I grew up here in Michigan in the United States and uh, been here pretty much my whole life on both sides of the state. went to medical school over at the University of Michigan, so I was on the east side of the state for nine years, but back here in West Michigan and has a way of sucking people back in. But yeah, I had a really probably standard kind of Christian upbringing where I was taught to go to church, taught just about really kind of having some sort of a relational interaction or time with God. And also, uh, we'll talk about this more later, I'm sure, but some examples of just how to reach out into the world and how to think about thinking outward more and also thinking about our local community in ways that Jesus teaches us. So I was fortunate to be introduced to a lot of those different concepts, and a lot of those have stuck with me. But I've also gone on a journey that has involved me doing a lot of learning and a lot of being willing to change a few ways that I've thought about this to kind of incorporate some concepts that I think have been really Christ-like and really important. I met my wife at college. I went to Calvin College with her, and she's from California, so it took her a while to convince her to stay in freezing cold Michigan, which (laughs) finally starting to get warm here. But we got married 22 years ago, and we have two kids through adoption. They were both born in Detroit. They're both African-American, and that has been its own beautiful journey. It's always messy, always kind of crazy, but also just an amazing, beautiful journey that teaches you a lot about uh, really God's desire to adopt his own children, which, of course, we are those children. So that's been a really neat story just to learn a lot about so many different things that we needed to learn about. And then throughout that whole time, really throughout medical school and residency, especially the roots were planted for the financial journey that we're on and also the missions minded, I guess, journey, the globally focused journey that I've been on that I'm sure we'll discuss more later. But we ended up moving back here to Michigan on the west side of the state where I grew up in 2009 and have been here in Holland, Michigan, along the lake shore of Lake Michigan ever since. And it's been interesting to see the benefits, but also the challenges of being in a community like this. But there's been lots of opportunities, both with young people and young adults and also people our age and older, just to really 
pick people's brains and talk about a lot of missions related or financially related topics that, you know, can help us to maximize our impact for God. Yeah, Jay, one of the things that I find so fascinating about your story is how closely a lot of it parallels to my story going through medical school and residency. And one of the things that I have talked about in my own story is just the interesting financial path that physicians take going through life where you're basically have a negative income for a long time, learning to live on very little through medical school and then in residency with kind of a modest salary. And then going on to practicing as a physician where the income can shoot up dramatically overnight. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about what some of those stages have looked like in a little bit more detail, specifically kind of how you guys walked through that financially and what that looked like for you guys. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, some of this parallels what a lot of us go through with a grad school experience, or maybe there's just a lot of college debt where there's not a lot (laughs) to go around and you kind of have to make do with a lot less for quite a long time. And that was true with us more. We had some college debt for sure. We also had all kinds of medical school debt because we weren't really paying any of that off as we were going. And so I think looking back, I would say that in many ways it was a blessing because it really forced us having no money and having negative money, like you said, really forced us to maintain a standard of living that we became acclimated to. And by we, I mean my wife and I, we didn't have Levi come home, our first child, until I was out of residency. And so I think that helped us to realize that we could just live not just on less, but also well below our means during that time in a way that was still very satisfying, in a way that was similar to our peers, because most of them were in medical school as well. And so we didn't feel like a lot of people were having all these things that we couldn't have. And that's not everyone's experience, of course, but I think it was helpful for us because it was very normal in some ways to live below our standard of living, to live on very little and to enjoy some of the simpler and less expensive things in life, maybe more than we would have otherwise. And so that, I think, prepared us for some of the goals that we set during that time, which were to say, hey, if we can do this for nine years throughout medical school and residency and really feel totally fine with where we're at as far as the standard of living, where we're living, what kind of social circle we have, what kind of things we have, it's reasonable that we could probably continue something similar to this once I'm out of residency and making a lot more money. And it's crazy, actually, the change that happens. I mean, you're making, you know, between 40 and 60 grand a year during residency, typically. And all of a sudden, depending on your specialty, you're making from three to even 10 times that, depending on where you're going to work. And nobody's prepared for that. And I don't think that the medical school curriculum typically does a great job preparing us for that either. And so I think that time, that, you know, seven to nine year period of time during med school residency is a really good time to kind of get used to a standard of living and make decisions and goals for the future so that you can have those in place when you do make those huge transitions so that you make them well. And I think we'll talk more about some of those transitions later, but I, especially the dwelling you choose to live in, the neighborhood you choose to live in, and the social circle you choose to have during that transition, late in residency or between residency and a practice. But really for anybody who's making a transition in life to a new job, to a new career, it's so important to make those transitions with the mindset of how are these going to be conducive to keeping our financial and giving and missions goals rather than are they going to be good in and of themselves for us? 
Because once you're in a certain neighborhood and dwelling and social circle, it's very hard to get out of them. And even the best intended people really, really, really struggle to be able to maintain some of the goals and standard of living they had when everyone else around them is talking about certain things, talking about certain possessions, kind of encouraging people toward them, even if we're not realizing that there's peer pressure or that there's kind of increased expectations, it just happens. It creeps up on us and we all know that. So I honestly think having a long period of time where we're used to having very little, it helps solidify a standard of living and some goals that you can make for the next phase of your life that maybe a more standard kind of path for careers for people maybe isn't quite as conducive to. So I found that to be a blessing a lot. It made it pretty easy for us to make some of the decisions we did. That being said, there was quite a bit of debt that we had when we were done. And I think we'll talk maybe more about kind of ways that we can deal with that, but still be extremely impactful even early on in one's career, whether it's medicine or something else. But it was exciting rather than more scary to be able to take on that debt because we had a plan for it that still allowed us to give a significant amount to very effective organizations, even while we were paying off debt. And debt didn't become something then that kept us from being who we were, but there was a plan to have it be paid off over the period of time it took so that we could continue to be the people God created us to be and reach out to the people he created us to reach out to. Yeah, Jay, I think it's really cool how you navigated what could have potentially been a lifestyle explosion as you transition from residency to the workplace afterwards. We talk a lot in financial planning about lifestyle creep, but like Keelan mentioned, I think you did have to really think ahead and get in front of this temptation to really think, God blessed me for me, and now I get to buy all those things that I've wanted. But you mentioned giving a number of times, and I'd just love to hear a little bit more about where those seeds of generosity were planted in your heart, where there are specific moments or experiences where that became more a part of the way that you managed finances. Yeah, no, there were plenty of moments that were not even really picked up at the time or intentional, but I think God, as he often does, puts very unexpected moments by very unexpected people who even today don't even know that they've made that difference into my life so that it drove me kind of to think in different ways and maybe set different goals. I mean, it also, these moments will help explain how during the medical school and residency period, we set some goals maybe that other people wouldn't set, or maybe their expectations would actually go in a totally different direction. And so I'm thankful to God for those moments. And the first one is my father, who he would always show us the different places that he was giving money to, not to brag or show off, but because he wanted to give us an example of, or maybe an expectation of using our money for other people and not just ourselves. And so he didn't show us the amount. He didn't always show us, you know, the total amount every year that he was giving. But what he did was say, hey, you know, we think that's important that we're giving some of this to this organization because of this. And so even though I wouldn't say at all that he had any sort of sense of research or any kind of objective evidence that would guide him one way or the other, he was clearly trying to think through that. And he was clearly trying to prioritize, you know, a significant chunk of what he had going to different places around the world. And so that rubbed off on me and, and made it more normal to give in that way, not just to give more abundantly, but to give more wisely, to give where there was more neglect and maybe much greater efficiency impact per dollar. 
And looking back, I love that because it wasn't as hard for me to kind of think about that as being something I should do or something that's normal instead of something that the world would be like, that's crazy, right? So that was the first moment. The second moment <laughs> came completely unexpectedly. It was during my third year of medical school. And this is the busiest year of medical school for people who don't have that wonderful experience of four years of crazy busyness. So during this time, I was sitting at lunch with a couple of residents and I was the low man on the totem pole being the third year medical student. So they were kind of dreaming about what they were going to do with their sudden increase in salary in the next year or two when they were going to graduate. And it was a fun conversation. There was nothing wrong with it. They were talking about, you know, just different houses or maybe buying a boat or something. And then they look right at me and say, well, what are you going to do when you're done? And I didn't even know what I was going into at that point. But I kind of naively, and it was naive, it sounds really pious, but it was totally naive. I said, well, I'd really like to give a, a significant amount of that increase, you know, away to different kind of charities, because I think, you know, I won't be used to having all that money. And I'll never forget to this day, one of those residents looked at me, I can tell you his name, it was so kind of bored into my brain, but he looked at me with eyes that just drilled into my head and said, no, he won't. He won't ever do that. He said, you will eventually get used to a new standard of living, kind of new desires, new wants. And you're not going to follow through with that. He's like, I know of people who have said that and they haven't done that. And he wasn't trying to be mean. He was actually trying to give me helpful advice and to say, well, that's, that's kind of naive. And I don't think he was being defensive either. But I think most of us who go to medical school or have a similar brain who go into different fields, take that as kind of a challenge. It's like, okay, game on. Yes, I am going to do that. <laughs> And I can do this now. And so that was kind of the first time I almost maybe emotionally was invested in really going on this journey toward both abundant and also wise and effective giving. And it was an off comment by somebody that I barely even remember that I never saw again after that rotation. And yet God kind of used that as a little bit of an impetus. Another moment came the first year of residency, my intern year, where I happened to have, again, just a totally random physician who I only interacted with a few times, but one of those times he told us, he sat us all down and said, I need to tell you about finances because nobody's going to teach you about this in medical school. And so I'm going to talk to you about just how to think about money in ways that's helpful for you to be able to make wise investments, but also, you know, be able to kind of think about how to apportion your money when you get out of residency to be helpful. Now, this wasn't a Christian doctor. He didn't at all have giving your missions in mind, but he did impressed upon me the importance of having a plan and of really thinking ahead well before I went through that transition in income so that I would be able to implement something that was well thought out and kind of proactively intelligent and informed rather than kind of doing it reactively. And that was kind of the main contribution of that moment, which was important. I think the final moment that ended up being extremely important was when I was introduced to what is called the effective altruism movement. I don't really subscribe to that movement in its entirety, and so I want to make sure that I say that. But it's a secular movement, largely, that really focuses on research and retrospective evidence and as scientific as information as you can get to evaluate where money has the greatest impact per dollar around the world for different causes, usually healthcare or are causes that most people don't think about, but it causes that have a very high chance of having a very high impact per dollar. and. Although there's certainly aspects of that movement where they focus on causes that I don't really feel like are things that Christians you know, need to be focusing on, or even some things that I don't think Christians should focus on, 
They are very passionate and very successful at taking the research and what is known and what we have learned very seriously. And some of the principles and statistics and guiding facts that they use are extremely helpful. And I'll be probably alluding to that a little bit later. And so I think there's a lot we can learn from those folks. And it really presents an opportunity to have a great ministry because if you are caring about having a high impact per dollar for the kingdom of God, and you're using some of the same principles that they use. I've had so many conversations with people I never, ever would have had access to who wouldn't have even given me the time of day as a Christian that have surprised them, that have really made them intrigued by, oh my gosh, here's a Christian I can respect who really, really wants to do something similar to me. He's just doing it for God instead of just because, right? And that came at a wedding reception when someone introduced me to that movement. It was some random person I hadn't seen in years. And he said, hey, you sound like a guy who should check this out. And I'm like, all right, cool. And that was actually, again, just a little moment God used to help me learn a lot of principles and implement a lot of principles, not necessarily to give more, but to give way more impactfully, hundreds of times more impactfully than I was before. Yeah, I want to come back to some of that, what you're talking about right now. But before we get there... I wanted to skip back to something you were talking about originally, which was that transition from residency to being an attending and practicing physician. We talked about, you know, all the potential for a jump. And it sounds like even during residency or, or potentially even med school, you had the seeds planted about, well, basically a financial finish line in, in a sense of, you know, this is how much I need. And, you know, we don't need any more beyond that. So I'd love to hear what that actually looks like once the, your income did jump and the, you know, that came to put the rubber to the road and start to put that into practice. Were there things that you didn't expect that you kind of ran into or, you know, what did that transition look like for you? Sure. The transition itself was fairly easy because we didn't really change the standard of living that we had. In fact, the house we moved into after residency was smaller well, it wasn't smaller, but it was definitely less expensive <laughs> than the house that we had during residency, mostly because of the housing market situation around 2009, but also because <laughs> we kind of had just a plan in place and we kind of knew what we wanted to do. Part of it was that we were moving to an area that had a somewhat lower cost of living as well. So some of these things were just logistical factors, not so much intentional, but I think because we knew what we wanted to live off of, we knew what we wanted to use the rest of that money for, dividing it between investments, an emergency fund, paying off debt, obviously, but also constant giving in some way, at least. It wasn't too difficult to transition. It was more just implementing it and executing it. And that's why I think building that mindset is the most important step of all of this. And I talk a lot with young adults and they're in their career building phase or their career discovering phase, whether they're in college or in their young 20s or even late 20s. And so for them, I really encourage them. They're all worried about, oh, how much should I give? Where should I give? And, and right now, I really encourage them to just focus on number one, just setting aside an unspendable chunk of money that feels a little sacrificial, but that's something you cannot spend. It's living below your means, no matter what that is do that. Like that's the most important step for almost everyone is just to get used to not living according to what you could live according to. And just to get used to that mindset of having something you can't touch that's going to be used for something else. And then of course, the next question is, well, what do you use that unspendable chunk of money for, however big or small it might be? And depending on what stage of life you're at, 
you know, you would use it to invest in certain investments, like maybe a Roth IRA, if you're going to have a huge income jump or a match 401k plan or an emergency fund or paying off debt, depending on how, how your interest rates look. Or, you know, we always made sure that we would be tithing no matter what through that time. And I think that that's a really important thing too, not just so that you're meeting a number or kind of legalistically, you know, reaching a certain goal that is talked about in the Old Testament, but rather to really get at the heart of not just spending what you can on yourself, but also not just spending what you're not spending kind of still on yourself by repaying debt or investing in things like that. There always had to be a significant amount. And we always used a tithe when we were in med school and residency although we were tithing off of government loans, essentially. We always used a tithe to make sure that there was something that felt a little sacrificial that we were giving to somebody else that wasn't just being used not to pay for our liquid expenses, but to actually be given away so that we could feel that sacrifice, but also, importantly, so that we could learn about where to give and how to give in ways that were effective during that time. It was huge for us to be able to learn those principles while we were still in the financial formation kind of mentality so that when we did give more away and when that unspendable chunk became much, much, much bigger, it wasn't difficult at all for us to kind of decide where to give or how to give or just to give at all because we had already been doing that. And I think that's a very important thing. You're not going to do what you haven't trained yourself to do. And if you've trained yourself to maximize your financial ROI your whole life, thinking, well, I'll just give it all away when I die, you might give it all away, but chances are pretty good you'll leach a lot into other expenses like, you know, just other family things or things for yourself, because a lot of times that pot of money is so big that it doesn't feel like it's taking much away from it. But what you're not going to be doing as well is you're not going to be learning how to give effectively. You're only going to be learning how to give in ways that kind of have some sort of kickback or ROI for yourself. And you're also not going to be setting an example to other people. If you're in your young 20s and you're giving just a few dollars away a month, but you're able to kind of teach all your friends why you're giving that and where you're giving that and what's effective to give to, that's like 10, 20 other people in their financially formative phase of life where they're actually learning how to form a career based off those principles too. And so it's not just going to be seamless for you when your income goes up. It's going to be seamless for them. And then your kids are going to see that. Your spouse is going to see that. And they form that kind of financial mentality too. It's so cool just to see how natural it becomes for people to think that way when that's kind of what's been happening all along. But you can't do that if there's not a decent enough chunk of your money that's being given away where you're both learning and exemplifying that sort of mindset. Now, I didn't know any of that when we were going into this. It's not like I had it all figured out. But looking back, I now see how important it was that not just that unspendable chunk of money, but that piece of that unspendable chunk that went to actual causes that would evangelize, disciple, church plant, do humanitarian aid for people. That was very, very important that was happening during that time, even though it wasn't a large amount. I think we got a little bit away from the transition, but <laughs> during the transition from residency into career, I don't feel like it was really that difficult because we had built that mindset throughout our 20s that made it honestly just kind of seamless and it worked out really well. So I think for people that haven't built that mentality, I think it's a great place to start because if you're going to suddenly have a huge change in what you're giving, like if you have retirement savings you're going to give away or if you're doing estate planning, I think it's important to kind of build a mentality and start doing that so that it's not a 
total disjointed event once that transition comes. But especially if you're a young adult or if you're kind of in my phase in your 40s with kids and in family life, it's not hard to build that mentality and kind of continue that forward so that any big transitions like a promotion or a new job or a career aren't going to be difficult to navigate. Jay, I think there's so much wisdom in the things that you've been talking about from living below your means, setting a plan, understanding what is a reasonable lifestyle for you and your family. I'm curious if you explored some of these concepts in scripture and what did you find there and how does that support or challenge your beliefs that were derived in experiences that you've had prior to that? Oh, scripture is the bedrock basis for what we do. And I mean, I don't say that piously. I obviously have trouble keeping scripture just as much as anyone else, but it's beautiful, honestly, how scripture so wonderfully lends itself and really like forms the basis for these ideas that end up being so effective and so helpful. And I mean, duh, we're talking about God here. Of course, he knows this and <laughs> understands this, right? And so, you know, when I'm looking at this, it's it's just so cool to see how he lays this all out for us. But I guess I'll start with two passages or two ideas about generosity that Jesus lays out. The first is this idea that generosity is, we can think of it more helpfully based on how much we keep rather than how much we give. And this comes from the story where there's the woman giving the two coins. And so there's, I'll back up a little bit. The disciples and Jesus are in the temple for those that might not be familiar with the story. And there's rich people coming in and giving these huge gifts for temple offerings. And then there's a woman that comes in and gives just two coins worth almost nothing, but it's all that she has. Whereas the rich people still have plenty when they leave the temple. And the disciples aren't portrayed as being super bright guys. But when Jesus asked them in this instance, <laughs> hey, who's been more generous? They actually get the answer right. And they're like, the woman has. And he says, you're right. And it's not because she gave more, obviously, or even something that ended up making a huge difference. It's because she kept less. And what I love about that Besides the fact that it's a really cool story about Jesus focusing and prioritizing maybe those that are marginalized, is the fact that it is applicable to everybody. It's a definition of generosity that everybody can do something with. Not everybody has a ton of money. Not everybody is a Bill Gates or an Oprah Winfrey and can just dole out billions of dollars to things whenever they want. But those people, even though they're generous and what they do is great, they're also keeping billions of dollars. And it probably doesn't feel terribly sacrificial to them. And I'm not trying to take away from what they're doing because what they do is wonderful. But at the same time, Jesus knows that really what we do with our money is more of a heart issue than a how much you give issue. It's, are you actually like showing me that you want me through this? Or are you just kind of doing this because you feel like you have to because you're doing it? And when it comes down to keeping less, that's a little bit more of a heart issue that shows us that, yeah, I'm willing to sacrifice a little bit for this, I'm going to feel it. And I need to feel it because I'm doing something for you in the end. Not even for those who are going to receive the money, but for you, God. God is the goal. And I think the second reason that that's so important is it's not just getting at our hearts and what we really think about money and how really attached we are to it, but it also helps us to have an applicable model that all of us can use. And I love this because I work with college students and young adults who don't have a lot of money. And a lot of them that don't even come from a background that would indicate they're going to make a lot of money. And what I love about this is that I can tell them, hey, you can have a huge impact right now and you can adhere to Jesus' definition of generosity simply by keeping less and giving what you can on top of that. 
you don't have to wait until you're in your career. You don't have to go to medical school and become a doctor or a successful business person or have this career where you're making a lot of money. Both your heart of generosity and your ability to have impact is going to be able to be exercised whatever financial situation you're in if you focus on keeping less instead of focusing on this figure of giving more. Now, it's great to give more if you can, but if you're giving more sacrificially, that means you're going to be keeping less anyway. And I love that because their eyes open and the light bulb goes on in their heads and they say, oh my gosh, even though I only have 10 bucks a month to give to something, I can still make an impact. And I say yes, because your heart is in the right place, which is what Jesus is really caring about. And we see that in the story of the rich young ruler, where he's asking the person to sell all he has and give to the poor, not necessarily because he wants them to get all that money, although that would be great, but he's testing the rich young ruler's heart. He's asking him, hey, do you really want me? Are you all in on this or not? And of course, he goes away without giving anything away, very sad. And then Jesus says, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And it's a very convicting passage because all of us in the United States, and most of us or all of us probably listening to this podcast, compared to the world, we're rich. And we have a lot. And we might not feel rich, but we do have a lot of money and resources and services available to us simply because of where we live and even our ability to listen to a podcast right now. And so it's a convicting passage, not to sell every single thing we have and give to the poor, but to make sure that we are giving and looking at generosity in a way that is truly sacrificial, showing God that we have a heart of generosity, but also being able to explain and exemplify a model of generosity that literally anybody, whether you only have two coins or whether you're, you know, Elon Musk, anybody can actually take advantage of. So that was a really important concept for me was the concept of keeping less. That's where we, I guess, embrace the model of setting an expenditure limit for our family of two at the time, but then it grew to our family of four. And that has become the bedrock of how we do this whole thing is to say, we're only going to spend this much money every single year. And we can talk about where we set that later. But the reason we did that was because we wanted to focus on keeping less. We wanted to be able to live a model of generosity that you didn't have to be a radiologist to live because most people that we talk to can have the exact same goal we do, or at least be able to implement the concept of setting an expenditure limit for themselves and still be able to give really impactfully. And so that's where our kind of giving model starts is with that whole keeping less thing. But that's not where it ends. And this is what's important. And this is kind of the second set of scripture to answer your question that we ended up focusing on a lot too. It's great if you set aside a chunk of money to give. It's great if you actually implement that and follow through with that and end up having a big chunk of money to give. But honestly, it ends up being where you give that ends up being far more impactful than how much you give. And that's partly because all of us have a cap on how much we can actually raise and how much we can give. And most of us have a cap that's not super, super crazy high. However, where that money goes ends up being incredibly impactful as far as how much impact you're having. And we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, but just by clicking a different button as far as where you're donating as you're looking through charities on the internet can literally increase your impact a hundred or a thousand fold just by clicking one button versus another or by focusing on different cause groups or different people in different places in the world. And so the second set of passages that really, really have kind of buoyed our model, I guess, of giving for ourselves are the ones that talk about maximizing impact. Jesus talks more than anybody about this. He talks about prioritizing the soil that produces 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. 
and that the soil that's fertile and producing a huge crop is the soil that the father's looking for. He talks in multiple places about whether it's talents or bags of gold. He talks about maximizing those, and he commends the people that he gives resources to that make the most of those resources and make the greatest impact from those resources. And I find it interesting that the one guy he doesn't commend is the guy who didn't do much to multiply his resources and to make more of those things. But Jesus says, well, at least put it in the bank and gain interest. And I think it's funny that Jesus used this kind of interest in the building of financial wealth as like something that, okay, that's good, but it's kind of the last resort if you're not going to make impact now with your money. And I think that has a lot to say about the way we think about money today, because a lot of us are like, oh, well, I can build this huge, huge bottom line by investing and by building all kinds of financial interest and being smart and shrewd with my money there. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not at all speaking against doing that in part. But when we're focusing on what Jesus is teaching, he's using that as our last resort. Like, that's the least you should do. And instead of doing that, he sets the example of making impact now. He speaks against building bigger barns. He speaks against having this money that we're kind of hoarding, even to the point where we would give it upon our deathbed or give it later, and instead focuses on giving now because the need is real and the people need it now, but mostly also because it shows us again where our heart is. Is our heart truly somewhere where we want to give, or is death the only thing that's going to succeed in separating our money from ourselves? I like to put it this way. Death should never be more generous than we are, right? And if we can't separate ourselves from our money to give now and to give abundantly, just like Jesus teaches us to, and as he exemplifies, then we kind of have to wonder whether we're more generous than death would be, because that's the only thing that can separate us from that. I'm not at all, again, saying it's bad to invest or create a retirement account or anything like that. And we can talk about more how we look at investment because we do do that. But I think just the principles of that are important for us to check ourselves just to make sure our hearts are really in the right place, regardless of what our kind of financial model is. The other places, of course, in scripture that talk about this, we see Jesus saying that, you know, a tree by its fruit, right? And so if we're not bearing fruit, you know, with our money that does the things that we're commanded to do, like evangelize and, and share the good news of the gospel, or make sure that churches are multiplying, or just people are being discipled, or people are being healed and released from oppression and being restored from difficult situations, I don't think we can demonstrate the fruit that would be indicative of the tree that God created us to be. And so that's an important reason, too, to take seriously Jesus' model to give now and to give abundantly, both because it's going to create a human interest that could far outweigh the financialists we're able to produce over 40 years, but it's also going to be able to show God that we have a heart that's willing to separate with our resources for him, not just when it doesn't matter because we're already dead, right? And so I think those are kind of the biblical principles that we tend to use. And I could give a lot more passages. The only other one I'll talk about is about tithing, because I think this can be a confusing concept. I was taught my whole life, just being part of American church institutions and being very heavily involved in them, that tithing was meant to pretty much only go to my local church institution and that you know, that's where I should kind of give that 10% of money. And I wasn't necessarily taught that I should only give that, but it was definitely geared toward that. And the hard part about that for me was that I knew that my money was going to have a bigger impact elsewhere, just intuitively, even without all the scientific and research knowledge behind it that I have now. But I also knew that the people in my community were much more overserved than the people, really most of the people around the world. 
And I knew that they had resources available to them in the form of government programs or family that had money or nonprofits or other churches that would always be able to provide for them at least their basic needs, if not much, 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 much more than that. And so it always sat poorly with me, but I didn't really explore why that sat poorly with me biblical until I still really looked into the concept of the tithe. And if you look at Deuteronomy 14, it's amazing what it teaches about the tithe, because it, first of all, teaches that the tithe would be gathered centrally into towns or even centrally as a nation rather than into local congregations. And what that accomplishes is allows for a much larger recipient pool so that the rich aren't just feeding the rich, but resources are being brought more centrally so that you have a pool of people that have great need that they're going to be able to go to instead of relatively rich local communities getting richer while the poor ones are ignored. But the second concept that's important about the tithe isn't just supposed to go to the Levites, which at that time would have been really anybody who depended on income to do God's work. And today, the equivalent of that would be missionaries or parachurch organizations or church workers or pastors, things like that. But even just the Levites, today's equivalent would be well beyond just the church staff of our local church. It would be literally anybody around the world who depends on income for their work for God. But the Levites were only one quarter of the population that the tithe was supposed to go to. It included the fatherless, the foreigners, and the widows. Really, anybody who is marginalized anywhere. And that's so important. So when we're taught about the tithe in Scripture, we're taught that it's supposed to be gathered into a much larger pool than we're used to thinking of, so that the recipient pool would include many more people that were marginalized and at need. But it also was supposed to only a quarter of it go to those who were depending on the income to do the work of God. And three quarters of it was supposed to go to people in need wherever they were all around the world. And I love that because it fits so well with the global body of Christ model that we're taught in the New Testament, where we see in Acts 2 and 4, where resources are being brought centrally all to one place so that every excess was being distributed wherever there was need. And that, it says that multiple times, wherever there was need so that no one was needy among them. There was no rich getting richer community. There was no poor getting poorer. There was excess going anywhere to meet need. And we see that again in kind of the way Paul ran his churches, where the Macedonians and people from Achaia were raising money to be given hundreds of miles away to Jerusalem, which at that time was basically the other side of the world, to be able to meet their needs because they had excess in one place to give to need in another place so far away where they didn't even know these people. And yet Paul knew that the need was there and that the excess was very far away and was operating as a global entity because that's what we are. And we see him emphasize that in 1 Corinthians 12 when he talks about the body of Christ and that each of us should have equal concern for the other. And we're not taught this a lot of times by our spiritual leaders. We're certainly not taught that by our culture and our own biases to really focus locally. But when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Most of us, if we're being honest, if we ask, okay, has my money proven to show equal concern for everybody in the global body of Christ? Almost all of us would have to answer, not even close, not even close. And I'm not saying it's because we're evil, greedy people. It's because we're taught our whole lives to focus only on what's around us and what we see and what we have emotional connections to. But when you look at where the need is, <laughs> when you look at what money can do, all around the world, and where you look at where people don't have these safety nets and these government programs and these churches and nonprofits and relatively wealthy family members to help them out, oh my gosh, you can have so much more impact for Jesus' global body, nourishing it where it has the greatest need. And that doesn't just bring glory to Jesus, which of course is our primary goal, but it also does so much more to help the body be very effective throughout the world. 
So that was kind of a long answer about a lot of different biblical principles, but those are the ones I draw on primarily as we kind of create our model of finances. Yeah, that's awesome. There's a bunch of things to unpack there. Regarding your last point there about the tithe, I think we've seen that theme with a lot of the people that we've talked to on this podcast. I think it's easy to get into the mindset of, and a lot of people have this as part of their story, I'm going to give my 10% to my church. And then I've kind of checked off the box of what God has asked from me, you know, as far as generosity is concerned or giving. And after that, everything else I have kind of free reign with. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard the story of, I started off doing that faithfully. And I just had to wonder, is this all there is? This is all God has meant for me. And that's where a lot of people start to explore, you know, what is going on around the world? Are there opportunities to step into God's story? And I think that's where you know, a lot of the excitement is. And then going back to some of your other themes, you know, you brought up taking less, kind of shifting from how much to give to how much am I going to take? Another theme that I think comes up with some frequency and an important one. And I think one of the things that was making me think about is that as we start to kind of feel it a little bit more, I think it's easy to get into the mindset of it's important that I'm feeling sacrifice. And especially for somebody that hasn't really explored generosity, it's easy to think of it in a very legalistic way of like, I'm supposed to do this until I feel pain of some kind. But really the way that it has played out in my life, and I'm sure in your life as well, and many others is it's not about that at all. It's just that that's where things get interesting. When you give to a level that it actually makes any difference in your own life, that is where you really see God work. You know, if you are giving in a way that really has no impact on your heart whatsoever, and you know, you don't even think about it, then it's hard for God to be doing anything in your heart with that, you know, but where, you know, you're just giving God room to work and to move in your heart and to see what he might do. And that goes along with your second point there too, about the maximizing impact. I think there's so much joy to be found in that as well, you know, because it's one thing to be able to be a part of, I don't know, something that is not, I guess, a very ROI based thing you could give to. And there, I think that there's lots of good things to be doing that. But in like in my own life, there's something so exciting about seeing just the, you know, like you said, a hundred or a thousand times impact that multiplier that you can have on that by giving in different ways. Well, often that involves going across the world where the economy is just, you know, radically different, the magnitude compared to what we enjoy here in the States. But that's, I think the theme that I was taking out of a lot of those different concepts that you were sharing is just that, that joy of experiencing God so much of that comes through these same concepts. And that's what we're invited into is to be a part of what he's doing. And God's inviting us into a story in each of those ways. It kind of demonstrates that. Yeah, I think there are so many themes you mentioned there that really bring us back to the fact that this is God's story. And whether we get hung up on the concept of a tithe or how much to give or where to give and maybe think of it more legalistically, or whether we just don't want to give at all and would rather kind of just throw that out and not deal with it, I think we're often missing the point that this is an expression of really getting to know the bridegroom that we collectively as the church are going to marry. And when we're using our money, it's really the goal is not even generosity, 
It's not just to create some good that's happening in this world. It's to really show God <laughs> that we really want him and that we're aligning that particular aspect of what we have with who he is. It's no different than using our time to spend with him. You know, whether it's reading the Bible or worshiping him, it's no different than using our education or our gifts, you know, of knowledge to be able to accomplish something for him. And sometimes we separate money out as something that is different than that. But really, money is just another resource to use as an expression for how we are aligning ourselves to God. I'm glad you brought that up because no matter what we're talking about with generosity or giving or impact, it is really easy to make that the end goal. And when that's the end goal, rather than it being a means to the end goal of just being overjoyed at prioritizing the people that God himself prioritizes or focusing on the endeavors and causes and desires that God himself has, or really just finding the fulfillment that we were created to have in pursuing God. I mean, I think we miss out on a lot of that when we're so focused on just the goal of either accumulating money or even sometimes giving money. And I think that's what separates a Christian who is generous in giving from a non-Christian, is that for a non-Christian, and I work a lot with the secular world doing effective altruism, and their goal is good in that they want to make lives better around the world. But because that's the be-all, end-all goal of it, and there's no greater story to give them kind of a fulfillment and purpose in that goal, a lot of them burn out pretty quickly because they don't have this overarching theme of, I'm actually doing this, yes, to help people, yes, to learn to be generous, but primarily because I'm just aligning myself with the perfection that God is offering me and this person that I'm chasing down to be with forever in heaven. And I love that because it does give you a fulfillment and a joy in that you're not just giving to something to make sure more people are living or evangelized or discipled. You are literally like walking with God and being like, oh, I can't wait to do this because this is going to be so cool. Or, oh my gosh, I just learned this and let's put it into practice because we're both totally psyched about the same populations and the same causes and desires. And it's almost like you're with a best friend, like... Well, it's not almost, it is like you're with a best friend, you know, like kind of brainstorming together of how you can learn and how you can grow and how you can like accomplish the same thing you're both aligned with even more. And when we talk about, you know, the whole process of setting an expenditure limit and having this unspendable chunk of money and then learning how to spend it so that, you know, you're being wise about investing and paying off debt while still making sure you're giving. And then when you have an increased income, you know, being able to make it seamless to give so much more. I mean, I realize those steps seem terrifying to some people because maybe they haven't grown up with that sort of mindset or maybe, man, I just don't even want to think about that. Or, oh my gosh, I had plans for my money that maybe are threatened now. But like you said, Keelan, it is not that way at all. If you have a plan and going through these steps, what you're doing during that time is not getting more frightened about how to use your money. You're getting more excited. And maybe that's one way that this was so easy for us in that transition is because we saw this not just as an extension of us using our gifts or us being able to reach the types of people and cause groups we cared about, but we saw this as a way we could finally reach the point where we could more maximally pursue just who God was and like kind of run with him together toward doing the things that he wants to do in this big cosmic story. And it is exciting. I tell people this all the time. It does not feel like we're flogging ourselves or sacrificing. It feels fun because it is what I'm supposed to do. 
is to take not just money, but other resources and actually like align myself with God with them and see just the incredible, amazing stuff that happens. And it doesn't feel like I'm pursuing this rule or ritual at all. It feels like I'm pursuing a person and he's with me in that journey. And it's really cool. So if some of the stuff or if anything that we talk about down the road for those listeners, if it sounds threatening or sounds like, oh my gosh, I never want to do this or these guys are crazy or, you know, whatever, it's not that way at all. It is beautiful. And I can honestly say that, hey, I love my story with my wife and kids, but this is also up there in terms of most fulfilling things that have ever happened to me in my life because I truly believe Money is just one amazing, super effective way we can fulfill the purpose of who we were created to be. And who doesn't want to do that, right? <laughs> I mean, and so it's awesome. So I thank you for bringing that up because I think it is easy to get bogged down in some of the maybe more negative connotations of doing this when in reality, this has been just an awesome journey that is super easy to sustain because it is so fulfilling and because it does have to do with pursuing this person, not just pursuing a good deed. Yeah, thank you for saying all that, Jay. And I'm just so glad that you've addressed so many of these things. You have mentioned a few times about working with young people, and I'm really wondering how that experience has gone for you and how you got involved with working with young people in this area at all. Yeah, and this is obviously something that might not be part of many others' experiences, but it was again during my third year of medical school, the worst possible time you could do anything outside of medical school because you're super busy. <laughs> but this is how God tends to work. He's like, okay, I'm going to throw you a wrench. I'm not only going to give you this resident who's going to give you this challenge to you know live below your means, but literally the same month, it was the same month that that happened with a resident, I started working with a youth group. And that all came about because some random person called me on a Friday night and said, we've got 120 high schoolers at an all-nighter and only four adults, and we just need living, breathing you know, <laughs> human beings to come and chaperone. <laughs> and so I'm like, really? It's my third year of med school, and it's a Friday night. But I went, and I was hooked. It was awesome. And so I had a pretty positive youth group experience myself, which probably contributed to this a little bit. I don't think a lot, honestly. I think I just have always gravitated toward the student population, but... At first, it started out just doing typical youth group stuff and just being a mentor in that way. But fortunately for me, when a lot of these kids graduated in Ann Arbor, Michigan, they tended to go that magical two-hour distance away for college where they were far enough away but not too far. And that happened to be West Michigan for a lot of them. And so when we moved to West Michigan for my career, I kind of followed a lot of them to college. And so I was able to continue working with them as college students, which is pretty unusual for a youth group worker and at that point, once you start working with some college students, you get to know a lot of their friends and it just multiplies and explodes pretty quickly as you build trust and rapport on campus. And so for me, it started out very much a small group type of a thing, a discipleship type of a thing, just kind of a general mentorship type of a thing. But as I started really developing and my wife you know, and I started really maturing our kind of financial journey and giving impactfully, we definitely have kind of rethemed the way that we look at young adult ministry toward that because young adults bring an entirely different set of skills and gifts to this whole pursuit than I can or than somebody with a lot of money who might be in a more later stage in their career. And they have just amazing powers of advocacy and mobilization and excitement. And they are also in that learning phase where they are much more globally aware and much more willing to consider new options and learn about, you know, the state of affairs around the world and how impactful they can be because that's what they're doing all the time is learning, right? And so it's a beautiful population to work with because 
they have a lot to offer, but also are willing to kind of allow you into that to be able to inform them and learn from you. And so over the years, that whole young adult ministry has changed from a typical youth group thing to still that. I mean, obviously still personally supportive of them and praying for them and mentoring them, but also involving a lot of different components of ways that they can use their own, I guess, age-related gifts to be able to mobilize folks and advocate for folks and just be an example for their own peers, developing their own financial and career mentalities of how to think about different resources like money or time to really make a lot of impact. It's really fun because it goes along perfectly with their universal quest to figure out why they're here and where they belong in the workforce and what kinds of populations they were created to serve. And so it seamlessly interweaves with that when we talk about money too. And even though they don't have a lot of money, because giving a small amount of money in the right places can be hugely impactful, they can actually make a huge amount of difference. And I would say they've raised you know hundreds of thousands of dollars at this point, the young adults that I work with for incredibly impactful causes. And they get to celebrate the impact of that, which is so cool to see them just be like, I made that much of a difference. And I'm literally like 19 years old and have no money. But I know people that have money (laughs) who care about me. And I also know about really cool causes and charities and, and around the world that I can bring to them, even though they might not have been willing to learn that from me. They're willing to learn that from their son or daughter. And oh my gosh, the gifts that they have that I don't have are beautiful. And it's just another cool example of just the global body of Christ using its not just regional gifts, but age-related gifts in cool ways that come together beautifully. So that's kind of where that has gone with young adults, and I'm continuing that. And It's really cool just to be working with the types of college students and people in their 20s that I get to work with. Yeah, that reminds me of when we were talking about how just kind of exploring generosity and really stepping into that does so much to deepen your relationship with God. At the same time, it really opens the door to new relationships with the church, with other believers. And I think that what you're describing right there is a perfect example of that. But, you know, it's just when you have all these people kind of experiencing this excitement and desire to continue to step deeper and deeper into what God's doing, then God just has a really cool way of pulling people together into kind of a unified direction. And you see the same thing when givers partner with ministries who are really impactful and then relationships build there. And I mean, from there, maybe you can tell us a little bit about Bless Big, because I know you have a pretty interesting story and how that has come together and what you're doing there and is full of relationships as well. Yeah, thank you. So Bless Big is, it's blessbig.org, just B-L-E-S-S-B-I-G.org. It's a project that many people contributed to putting together, but my wife and I were the kind of primary facilitators of it. But we, throughout the years, kind of noticed a few holes or a few areas that were lacking just in kind of typical spiritual training as far as how to think about money, both in our own story, but also in many others. And having worked with so many kids and young adults through that time, we were able to get to know their parents, see their family situations, and see these same kind of holes that just kept showing up, that weren't being addressed by churches, that weren't being addressed in typical mentorship situations or even in family situations. And I think that the two biggest ones were this idea that the church is truly a global entity and not a local one. That's the first hole that we noticed is that everybody that was teaching them was teaching them to focus very locally 
on people that they saw and knew and were building community with, or maybe that, you know, they kind of just were experientially connected to or relationally or emotionally connected to. I'm not saying that's bad at all, but that tends to be a very consuming type of a mindset where you tend to hardly ever think about people that you don't see or have emotional relations connections to. But you also forget that there's actually a lot more of those people than the people you do have relational emotions connections to. And most of those people don't have the same type of nice church community or family community or local community that you do to kind of help them out. So that was one big hole that we really wanted to address with this. The other big hole was kind of what you mentioned before, where people were part of a church and giving to a church, but kind of coming to the same conclusions that we're is it's like, this is this all there's supposed to be. There's 170 churches in my town of 60,000 people, and I'm going to one of them, and they're spending literally a ton of money to build the same building that's built across the street, doing the same programs as those across the street, hiring the same staff as those across the street, and sometimes across multiple streets on one corner to serve the same population. And that's not just churches. There's nonprofits and government programs and individual donors that are serving the same population. And I'd be mentoring kids who had like seven other mentors <laughs> because there were just so many resources available to them. Or you'd, you'd do feeding programs with folks who literally could tell you where they were getting every single meal every single week because they had like 30 feeding programs available to them that they could go to. And I know that not everybody in developed nations like America have all of that in that abundance, but we do have that in much greater relative abundance. And so to be able to help people realize how big the world is, how many people there are, how neglected those people are, and really think about the fact that their concept of church is truly a global entity was a huge thing. And then to add to that, I mean, the natural questions that come up is, well, what can I do about that, even if I do think globally? So to add to that in Bless Big, the other whole was how can I do something that can be reliably effective? Because a lot of people, their first excuse as far as not thinking globally is, well, you know, we've given tons of money to different things, you know, over the years globally, and it hasn't done anything. Ironically, it's actually the local expenditures of giving money that have been much less effective than the international expenditures, if you actually look at how charity works. And it's because in developed nations, we've solved all the problems that money is good at solving. And all the problems we have left are the problems that money is not good at solving, because if it were, we would have solved it, <laughs> because we have money. And so there's nobody dying of malaria in the United States. There's nobody that can't go to school because they got parasites in their water. There's nobody that is succumbing to worms you know, in their intestines because they just can't get the medicine that costs pennies to be able to cure that. We all have access to education and healthcare in these countries, whereas they don't. And that keeps them in these cycles of abuse and poverty and substance abuse that are horrible. And so we don't have as many of those problems and sometimes none of those problems here because we've already solved those problems. But where money is most useful, we tend not to focus because we don't have connections to it and because we don't know how impactful it is. So the two holes Bless Big was meant to fill was first from a Christian standpoint, let's really truly think of ourselves as a global entity and realize that Jesus is not just the head of our little local body in our church. He is the head of the global church. And if we are not having equal concern for every part of this church, we are not thinking of the church as we should think of the church. And then number two, once we realize that and know the people out there and who needs to be focused on and prioritized, then we want to show you how to do that in a way that's reliable, the most reliable ways you can. So what Bless Big does is it takes 
basically the worldwide community and exploration, both from a secular groups and from Christian groups, and takes advantage of all of that research and brings it all together from these communities to be able to say for each cause group that you might be interested in, which are the most robustly proven charities to have a high impact per dollar. Now, we don't evaluate this based on firsthand information from organizations because, unfortunately, we've learned that there are a million different ways to spin statistics that somebody might put on their website or throw out on a Facebook ad or something. And I'm not saying everybody's dishonest, but honestly, the way that these statistics are spun, like, for example, 100,000 people were impacted. Well, what does that mean? And I don't know what that means. Or people came to know Christ. Well, what does that mean? And, and I've explored these statistics myself. And honestly, a lot of them don't even come close to panning out to what they're advertised as. So I understand the skepticism people have about giving to things and saying, is my money going to have impact? There's no perfect way to prove that there will be high impact per dollar. But the best way we know is to be able to have third parties independently audit charities and if possible, do good quality scientific research, the same research that we depend on as doctors to come up with our conclusions and recommendations, or the same research that resulted in you having a cell phone that works, and so on and so forth. But to be able to say, hey, do we have third parties that have no skin in the game that can independently verify and isolate this organization's impact and prove that they have a high impact per dollar? And even better, for some outcomes that you can measure, can we actually quantify that impact per dollar reliably? Now, that's hard to do with certain things like discipleship and stuff like that. But there are metrics or parameters you can use to at least from a relative standpoint say, wow, like from these relative metrics, like how many people have gone through a 10-month discipleship program in these communities or how many people have been baptized? And we know what that actually means and what baptism actually is. Or what mortality benefit has there been in this community? Or what disease prevalence improvement has there been in this community? We can measure those things and see if there has been a proven impact per dollar impact retrospectively from third parties that aren't biased toward kind of inflating any numbers. And so what we do is take the best evidence available, both for Christian and secular organizations that are doing the kinds of things that Jesus calls us to do, to be able to recommend for different cause groups the organizations that have the best, most robustly proven high impact per dollar for their cause group. The reason we wanted to create this ourselves instead of just focusing on like an ROI ministries or other different charity evaluators really is threefold. The first is that there are very few people doing this sort of thing, recommending charities who are willing to have considered both Christian and secular organizations. And for those that might be hesitant about secular organizations, think of it this way. First of all, Jesus commands us to go and heal the sick and restore those who are broken and oppressed. And so anybody doing that is doing something that Jesus is commanding them to do, whether it's secular or not. Second of all, there's a lot of Christians in these organizations. So you're actually supporting the work of Christians when you support a lot of these secular organizations who have Christians in them. And third of all, if you're so focused on evangelism and discipleship, which is great, it's really hard to evangelize and disciple people who are dying of malaria and mosquito bites and parasites and other things. And so the more people that these other organizations are keeping alive, the more people we get to reach with Jesus, <laughs> which is awesome. We need people to stay alive in order for us to do what we're supposed to do as Christians. And so that's great. So I just wanted to mention that if you balk a little at secular organizations, now I'm not talking about organizations doing things that Christians want to approve of, but rather organizations we can work alongside and even really have a great ministry toward who are doing wonderful work. So the first niche that we wanted to fill was evaluate both secular and Christian organizations. The second niche that we wanted to fill was to evaluate them not according to 
user reviews or firsthand statistics, but according to third-party retrospective, as good a research as we had on these cause groups. And so, and if possible, to be able to quantify that. And so that was a huge thing so that you can be feel most reliable about these charities. And we wanted to do that as a meta-analysis, which means looking at not just one party evaluating charities, but as many as possible. And currently, Bless Big takes the data from over 20 different charity evaluators, both Christian and secular, to be able to have as big a pool of information about these charities as possible. And we weigh these evaluators according to the quality of their evidence. So if they have better evidence that was more robustly done or more scientifically done, those evaluators get higher weight than the ones who are just having maybe just kind of a survey type of a base thing. And so the quality of the evidence becomes important there too. And then our final recommendations are the best charities in each cause group you might be interested in that have the most robust and across-the-board support, especially from the organizations that really do true high-quality research. I'll be the first to say I wish there was much higher-quality research on all of this stuff because, unfortunately, especially in the Christian world, there are not a lot of research parties doing good quality research on outcomes for different charities or missionaries. And so, oh, I would love to have that. But there are some really good parties. And many of you, of course, and you've had people from ROI Ministry on this podcast, that's the best one. (laughs) They're the best party evaluating Christian charities. There are others I could mention too, so I don't want to say they're the only one. But we use them as one of our most important Christian charity evaluators because of that. We also use GiveWell.org, which evaluates mostly secular charities and has a very narrow kind of window as far as which charities they evaluate because they only focus on the ones that have the highest pretest probability or likelihood of being effective. But I want to highlight these two in particular because if, for whatever reason, Bless Big isn't something that kind of resonates with you, I want to give you two other examples, both from the Christian and the secular world, that are just phenomenal. So just going to ROIMinistry.org, And just being able to look at their process and the fact that they, as a third party, used another third party, the Calvin Edwards group, to be able to evaluate their charities. They take this seriously, and they want you to know that you're getting a huge ROI for the kingdom of God with your gifts. But GiveWell.org, who does this from a secular standpoint, they probably evaluate charities more rigorously and robustly than anyone I know of, and with the best available evidence. And so even if you just learn about generosity, from their website and how to think about money and how to think about approaches to giving that are helpful, I guarantee you as a Christian, you will learn a ton of amazing, wonderful stuff that sounds a lot like Jesus and looks a lot like Jesus on their website, even if you don't end up using the recommendations, which I highly recommend myself. So I want to give you those alternatives from the Christian and secular standpoint, roiministry.org and givewell.org, in addition to blessbig.org. Because all three of us are trying to do the same types of things in different areas. Where ROI Ministry excels is that they really focus on the Christians part of it for those that are really only interested in Christian charities. Where GiveWell excels is having by far the highest quality research and really, really having a robust, reliable recommendations. And where we hope Bless Big excels is being able to bring both Christian and secular charities together from a research third-party standpoint, as well as including a lot of cause groups that neither of those other groups include, like mental health or first responders in veteran care or the elderly or you know empowerment of women and gender equality or human trafficking or a lot of these other cause groups that, that maybe kind of fall through the cracks when organizations are just looking at a few top charities. So I think all of these different parties and others are valuable, but I wanted to mention those three because I think they'll be the most helpful to you. 
Well, Jay, you've clearly done your homework and you have a deep passion for this space. And I would just love to hear what are you excited about coming down the line in the space of giving and impacting the world in a very intentional way? Well, I think the most exciting thing that we get to look at from our personal standpoint is we've worked now with young adults and students for 20 years. And so many of them are out on their careers, have more kids than we do, and are you know just really able to implement a lot of these principles. And so it's been really rewarding. Obviously, we're kind of playing a long game strategy working with young adults and hoping that it pans out. But to see this kind of be implemented in some of their lives is just a really cool thing. So A lot of what we do is helping them now not just get through high school and college, but really be able to be examples for their own young adult peers and implement and and going through, I guess, the busyness and the groundwork of actually doing what they've been thinking about doing. So that's going to happen for a long time yet. And we're excited just about seeing them find that same just total joy and fulfillment and being able to take cause groups and people groups and human needs that we know we're meant to serve and really kind of do that in their own way, but with the same principles that allow them to do it effectively. So that's one thing we're excited about, both my wife and I. Another thing we're excited about is that in all of these conversations, we've started working a lot more with people on the other end of the career spectrum who are more at the retirement phase where they've been very successful and they're extremely gifted in being able to build a business or to you know make a decent amount of money. And a lot of them, they've been so successful that they'll come to us and say, we don't know what to do with this. We have all of this money saved up, or we have this giving that we've wanted to give away. But because we've been focused on really using our gifts to create a successful business or to be able to invest well or whatever it might be, we don't necessarily know kind of how to give that in really effective ways. And so I've been working with my financial advisor and other different parties. I'm the current president of National Christian Foundation and some of the other people that I'm in touch with around the world about just how to engage that population and to really not just suggest ways to give, but again, to kind of have this be kind of a second breath of life for them where they've been so invested in their careers and businesses and worked so hard and have had so much financial fruit, which is so awesome because they have gifts I'll never have, but then actually be able to step back with them almost like a retirement planning thing and say, what did God create you to do? What people groups, what types of desires, needs did he really create you to actually to bless with this sort of thing? In other words, how can the two of you take the rest of your life in this retirement journey or this later career journey and really build it into a beautiful legacy that isn't just giving to the poor, but that's doing what you were created to do for the world in a way that blesses the global body of Christ as maximally as possible. And so it's really fun, maybe for the first time for some of these folks, to be able to explore like who they really actually do want to impact and where money actually does have a huge impact. And we're just at the very beginning of different vehicles for doing that and kind of delving into that population. But it's a really fun population to delve into because so many of them just haven't had a chance to really step back and think about their own legacy and impact beyond their family or their business and career. And I love that when they can really play around with causes and people groups and needs that they've never really been able to focus on before, but now have this huge amount of money or sometimes time to be able to devote toward that. And just to see them smile and like be like, 
I can have that kind of an impact or I can make that difference. I'm like, yeah, this is awesome, right? This is what you were made for. And God, I'm sure intended for those gifts that you've used all these years to result in just so much nourishment and life and laughing and joy for people throughout the body of Christ as you would want for your own kids and your grandkids, right? And so to be able to really actuate allowing people around the world to hold a grandchild in their arms who's healthy instead of dead, or to be able to successfully navigate parenthood, just like they're helping their own kids do. I mean, what a beautiful thing to be able to do that for thousands and thousands of people around the world. And they just haven't had a chance to focus on that. So that's one population and demographic we're really excited about continuing to grow in and to learn from. They have so much to offer us too, as we figure out just how we can work together as a body of Christ to really bring impact to the world. So those are the two things we're excited about from a blessed big standpoint. As parents, our kids are, you know, getting into the junior high, high school phase. So that's a whole adventure that we get to navigate. But Laura (laughs) and I, we're just so excited about learning a lot about how to navigate that with two African-American kids, with two adopted children, but also just with two junior hires who, you know, are just figuring out who they are. And it's such a beautiful thing to see their gifts and just different ways that those are maturing and growing. And every parent gets to see that. But you know, it's a really cool thing too. So from a personal standpoint, it's it's really fun to be invited into that journey and to see their journey become more of their journey, which is really cool too. But I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's fun to see them take some of these concepts and take them to heart too, and have them be just kind of a natural way that they think. And we just hope that we're doing a good job helping that to continue in their own version of that, you know, into adulthood. Yep. That's awesome. As we get to the end of the episode here, I did want to leave a minute for our manager's minute. You know, as we seek to manage God's wealth wisely, we like to end every episode with one practical action our listeners can take to do just that. So Jay, do you have a quick suggestion for how people can be using any financial margin they have to serve their communities, advance the gospel, or build God's kingdom? Yeah, I use this little rhyme. I like it. It's simple, but it kind of encapsulates a lot. And this is really purely from a just how to use your own resources to have impact, whether they be time or or money. It goes like this. It goes, give time to those around you. That's what empathy is for. But give cash to the world's lesser served. You'll heal 10,000 more. And I like that because sometimes when we talk about money and giving abroad to people around the world, it's really easy to say, well, I know people with needs here and they have real important needs and I feel like I'm neglecting them, right? Or, you know, maybe when they're talking about church giving, you know, to say, well, my church is struggling and, you know, I I need to do something to kind of give back to this community. I think the two things that are most helpful to remember is that when you're considering giving the right resource in the right place, you're not abandoning anyone. You're just realizing that money does so much more, literally 10,000 times more in some cases in different initiatives with different people groups around the world than it will do here. But your time or your advocacy or your relational efforts can do far more here than money does. And so you're not abandoning anyone. The friend you have with mental illness, your time is incredibly valuable to them. The elderly friend or relative you have, your relational capacity for them or just learning from them is hugely valuable to them. Whereas you could dump a bunch of money on either of these people and it might not help them at all, right? And so I think just using the best resource in the best place, realizing that you're not abandoning anyone, but rather you're just knowing where your gifts and resources are going to be most effective is hugely important. And I guess I just want to kind of emphasize the importance of that with a few statistics that I really think are incredibly important. 
Most people don't know this, but between 94 and 95% of U.S. donations stay in the U.S., even though the United States only represents 0.1% of those in extreme poverty. And if you think that's just a secular thing, it's not. If you look at Christianity Today, they've done an analysis on church budgets and have shown that only 5% of the average U.S. church's budget goes to international aid or missions combined. And only 10% goes to any sort of aid or missions at all. And so the church is basically the same as the U.S. general population in that we are very good at focusing on our own. But when you pair that with the next number I'm going to give you, it's even more devastating in that if you look at all kinds of ways to save lives around the world, and Duke University has done a great analysis of, I think, 200 different ways to save lives, it costs 2,000 times more to save a life in the United States as it does in the developing nation, one of the poorer nations on average. So we're giving almost all of our money to almost all the people where money doesn't do the most good, where it's most expensive to save lives, where people need saving lives the least. (laughs) If we think about this, this is a perfect storm of badness as far as creating impact and legacy. And so I just really want to encourage people who struggle with this idea of giving outside of their own kind of local experience, relational and emotional connections, to realize that when you're doing that, when you're choosing to give around the world where you're going to have 10,000 times the impact or at least hundreds of times the impact, you're not abandoning anyone. You're just letting the 95% continue to fulfill those people's needs. And you are one of the 5% that's willing to fill the needs for literally the billions of other people who don't have anybody who are caring for them. But even so, you can still use your other resources to address those needs of people around you. So you never have to abandon anyone You just use the best resource for the best need. And that's encapsulated in that little rhyme. Give time to those around you. That's what empathy is for. But give cash to the world's lesser served. You'll heal 10,000 more. And I love how that really allows us to use all of the things we have in a global sense to do the most for the body of Christ and ultimately for the person this is all about. And that's Jesus himself, the head of the body. Yeah, I love the way that that rhyme so succinctly captures that concept and, you know, I think that there is a lot of wisdom there. And, you know, we hear a lot about the impact abroad and the multipliers on that. But I don't think I've ever heard somebody talk about what you said right there about that. What is often needed most around us locally is our time. And I know for me, sometimes I feel tighter fisted around my time, even than my money. And so I think that there's a lot to unpack there. But Thanks so much for joining us tonight. This has been extremely valuable for me, I know, and I'm sure for Cody too. And we're just really grateful for all that God has led you through, for all that he has taught you along the way, and for all that you're now able to share with us through your experience. So thanks for taking the time to be with us tonight. Thank you. It's God's global body is a beautiful thing. Whatever has been poured into me and into all of you is kind of being poured into others. And a lot of you have things to pour into us. And so... I'm happy to share my contact information as well, and I would love to hear from anybody who wants to further the conversation because you have so many things to contribute (laughs) to the global body, including the three of us as well. So just thank you for the gifts you've already exercised, and I hope this excites you as it should to be more and more fulfilled, just making a greater impact for God and his kingdom. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. And now a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who's living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? 
If so, we'd love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't have to have all the answers. Just a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we'd be honored if you could connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. And finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 48. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.